0: Quick editorial note, Uh, we are taking pictures for a website update, so if you see our own Craig Harris uh, around with a camera this morning, uh, that's what he's doing. Uh, We don't do this every week, Uh, but our our website pictures are currently people wearing COVID masks uh, from about three years ago, and so we thought it was time to update update that, so thanks Craig for doing that. Um, The rest of us who are staying in here for the sermon this morning, you can turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 17 through 20. That uh, passage is also printed for you in your bulletin. Does our obedience matter in our relationship with God? Does our obedience matter? I wonder how you'd answer that. There are two ways we can wrongly think about our obedience with God. Uh, one way is to think that obedience is everything. Um, that, that it's how we earn our good standing with God, that if we're gonna get right with God, we've gotta earn it. We've gotta do good to be with Him. So we, that's one wrong way of thinking about it, that obedience is everything. Another wrong way to think about our obedience is to think that obedience is nothing. That it doesn't matter, that, that our faith, if, if we are a person of faith, that's sort of like this separate thing that we hold over here, but like how we actually live, like we just kind of like live however, like, you know, try to be a decent person, but like generally we just like live like the rest of the world. So um, I wonder where you land on that, where, you, where you're kind of tempted to go with that. Obedience is everything or obedience is nothing. Um, even if you're here this morning and maybe you don't yet consider yourself a Christian, you're, you're considering it, you're curious uh, enough so to be here in a worship service. Um, maybe questions around like obedience are major questions for you. Sometimes it's like the hang up of like, yeah, I know these really committed Christians and their lives are super inconsistent. And I just don't get it. I, like, because in your mind, being a Christian is about like, being good and doing good. And it's mostly like a behavioral thing, like where you do good stuff. And you know Christians are like, they don't always do good stuff. And so it's just massively confusing. How we think about obedience as Christians can be really confusing. And our passage is going to show us that people were confused about how Jesus viewed obedience... Um, This is a key passage It's going to help us understand how Jesus thought about obedience. But it's also going to be the key to understanding the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, which is our current series that we're looking at. So let me read for us Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. This is Jesus speaking. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Father, we do pause to thank You for Your Word and uh, oh how we need to hear from You. Uh, we want to know You more. We want to be different. We want to grow in You. And, and we can't manufacture that on our own. Holy Spirit, would You, would you give us ears to hear and, and eyes to see? And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in Your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, so, the Blair Witch Project uh, may or may not sound familiar to you. That was a movie that was released back in 1999. And it's a movie about three young filmmakers that go off into the woods that, to make this documentary about this legend, this mythical legend of the Blair Witch. And uh, it's interesting on a few levels. It was made on like a super low budget, but ended up making a lot of money. And it was also considered one of the first movies that was marketed primarily on the internet. Uh, ...rather than primarily on TV. And part of the genius of the marketing campaign for the Blair Witch Project... ...was that they created confusion as to whether or not it was a true story. You didn't actually know. There were were all these rumors. Was this a real-life documentary where three real filmmakers went into the woods? Like, is the Blair Witch thing real? You didn't know. Or was it just like this manufactured thing that they all made up? And I remember actually going to see the movie... Pretty much like right around opening weekend when it came out. Remember, it was like if you saw it. I know I'm dating myself a little bit here, but uh, it's like made to look like it was filmed with a handheld camera, so it was super shaky, like making people nauseous in the theaters watching it because it was the filming was so shaky. Um, but there was something about thinking what I'm watching right now might actually be real. Like these three people, did they really go into the? It made it so scary thinking that it was genuine and authentic, and real. But then it came out that it was all fake, thankfully. Uh, But it did take something away from the viewing experience, knowing that this was all sort of a fabricated fake documentary. Uh, There's a modern show, Stranger Things, which is set in Hawkins, Indiana. Um, It just so happens that I was visiting a pastor friend this past week in Atlanta, and we went on a walk in this park and. We came around the corner on this trail, and there was this large reservoir lake along the trail uh, in this park. And he told me that um, if you've seen Stranger Things Season 1, there's a very significant scene involving one of the characters, Will. So Season 1, Episode 4, very significant scene that gives you some initial resolution to the character of Will. And uh, he pointed to this lake, this reservoir, and he said, that's where they filmed Season 1, Episode 4 with the the thing going on with Will. I was like, what? What? And what I thought was just this you know, generic kind of lake, so I got my phone out, took pictures, brought it home, showed the kids. It was cool to see that it was, it was actually filmed in Atlanta, but also kind of a bummer because it made it feel slightly less authentic knowing that this wasn't actually some like, mysterious lake in this place called Hawkins, Indiana. Um, whether it's a movie set or a relationship or a person, uh, we are drawn to the real thing. ...to authenticity. We like real. We like depth. We do not love superficiality. And this is especially true when it comes to our faith. I mentioned this last week... ...but there are some studies on the church right now... ...and Gen Z is especially put off... ...by church people and church leaders in particular... ...who say one thing... ...who preach one thing but then live another way. That sort of like stark hypocrisy... ...is really off-putting. We do not like that when it comes to our faith any kind of phoniness or superficiality or pretending. In Jesus' day, there was a lot of superficial obedience happening... where it was this external obedience. On the outside, it looked like the real thing. These religious leaders in Jesus' time looked like they really loved God... but their obedience was not authentic. It was just a front. And when Jesus came and began to teach and to model the way of the kingdom... that that we're learning about in the Sermon on the Mount people got really confused about how did this Jesus think about obedience? Um, he did things differently than their religious leaders, and he talked about the law differently than all the religious people did at the time. And so two headings I want to think about this passage under this morning. The first is Jesus and obedience, and the second is us in obedience. First, Jesus in obedience. One of the main things in this context that would define Jesus and his thoughts about obedience would be the word confusion. There was confusion about how Jesus thought about the law of God. This is hinted at in verse 17 where he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Okay, so the law and the prophets. This would be the scriptures that they had. This would be their Bible up to this point. The law would be the first five books of the Bible. The prophets would have been everything else that they had that we would consider the Old Testament at this point. Um, And the religious leaders of the day, scribes and Pharisees, they were the experts in this book, in this law. And they were confused about Jesus' relationship with the law. I had a seminary professor named Dan Doriani who wrote about this confusion. He says, there was something about Jesus that made it seem like he was setting aside the law. His lifestyle certainly contradicted traditional Jewish interpretations of the law. For example, he spent too much time with women... He spent too much time with sinners and even shared table fellowship with them. This signified that he accepted them and considered them friends. Holy men were not supposed to dine with sinners or talk much with women... ...but Jesus did both. He goes on, he says, Jesus also seemed to repeal parts of the law. He said all foods were now clean. He healed on the Sabbath. Jesus violated traditional Jewish understandings of the law... ...but not the law itself. The confusion stemmed from the fact that Jesus disrupted traditional Jewish understandings of the law. Not the law itself. And this is important to remember as we continue to study the Sermon on the Mount. Because Jesus is going to say time and time again, You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And he's not changing the words or the commands of the Old Testament. He is correcting common misinterpretations of the law. But in the eyes of the religious leaders, he was abolishing their law. There's a movie uh, called The Glass Onion. Uh, it's a murder mystery uh, movie. It's about, it's, it's about a murder mystery party, the movie is. And there's uh, one of the characters, the actors is Edward Norton. He plays Miles Braun in this movie, who's this billionaire who has this amazing, crazy home on an island that actually is built to look like a glass onion. And, and, and Miles Braun in this movie, he invites all of his like, eccentric, um, kind of crazy, famous friends to come to the island, to this glass onion for a murder mystery party over the course of a weekend. And so the beginning of the movie is all these friends landing on this Greek island, and, and sort of you get like hints of their backstory as they get to the island. And there's a scene towards the beginning of the movie where all of them are sitting around together kind of before the murder mystery begins. And, and, and Edward Norton's character, Miles Braun, explains what they all have in common. And what they all have in common is that they're disruptors. And he has this beautiful monologue about what a disruptor is. He says this, he says, if you want to shake things up, you start with something small. You break a norm, an idea, or a convention, some little business model. But you go with things that people are kind of tired of anyway. Everybody gets excited because you're busting up something that everyone wanted broken in the first place. He says, that's the infraction point. That's the place where you have to look within yourself and ask, am I the kind of person who will keep going? Will you break more things, break bigger things... Are you willing to break the thing that nobody wants you to break? Because at that point, people are not going to be on your side. They're going to call you crazy. Because it turns out, nobody wants you to break the system itself. But that is what true disruption is. And that is what unites all of us. We all got to that line and crossed it. In the eyes of the religious leaders, Jesus was a disruptor. Because he came and he broke the system itself. And they were so confused about his relationship with the law and how he thought about obedience. And you and I, we actually still get confused about this very thing. We named a few of these ways that we get confused already where we can tend to think that that obedience is everything. That we can kind of default into this thinking of this is how we earn our way up to God. That's what every other religious system says. You have to do certain things to get up to God. And sort of we, we, we kind of buy into that thinking with Christianity, even though that's not the message of the gospel. Um, sometimes behind this view that obedience is everything is that God is like this angry God who needs to be kept at bay by our good behavior. It's almost like, um, like an angry, volatile parent. And where kids in this household feel like they're walking on eggshells all the time. And where like one bad grade... Or uh, one dropped dish, uh, one spilled cup of milk at dinner will set off that angry parent. And so these kids, if you look at their behavior, actually become very good, well-behaved kids. They're very obedient. Uh, but it's not motivated out of love for their for their parents. It's it's motivated out of a, a terror of this angry parent losing it. And so they do everything they can to, to prevent their parent from acting out. And um, it, 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 it can... It, it, we can live as though obedience is everything, and that can actually be a way of, of, of using our obedience to sort of keep God at bay and even keep a distance from Him, where we are not in close, intimate relationship with God, but we're just kind of trying to like, do enough to like keep Him happy, keep Him satisfied, and keep Him at bay. And there's actually a story about something similar. Luke chapter 15 tells the story of the prodigal son, which is a very famous Bible story. If you haven't read it or if you have, it would be good to revisit even this afternoon. And Luke 15 tells the story of this prodigal son. There's a character in that story that's not the prodigal son. It's the older brother. And this older brother does, is a really good kid. Does everything he's supposed to. But If you read the story, you realize that that good older brother is not actually close to his father. And so sometimes um, we can miss it by thinking obedience is everything. That's how we earn our standing with God. Sometimes we can think, though, that obedience is nothing. It's nothing. It doesn't matter. Um, where our lives, if, if you sort of were to take a snapshot, we talked about taking a snapshot of our lives a few weeks ago and what, that, what message would that communicate. But if we were to take a snapshot of our lives, it would, it would just kind of look like the world, like popular culture. We're just kind of living how everyone else lives. There's nothing, there's nothing different. And this can be especially tempting in a place like ours where it's culturally acceptable to be, and maybe even encouraged to be a Christian. Um, where you saying you're a Christian, that you attend church, is, is kind of a cultural norm. And it's actually a benefit to you, maybe professionally or in, in a circle of friends. Uh, but, then, but then how you actually live the details of your life, how you handle money, how you handle your body and your sexuality, uh, your work or school, your friendships, how you treat your family, none of that's actually like, connected to your faith. Because we think just obedience is nothing. How does Jesus come and disrupt our confusion about obedience... ...and our thinking that it's either everything or nothing? What's what's the reality? Look at verses 17 and 18. He says, I have not come to abolish them... ...the law and the prophets, that is, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away... ...not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law... ...until all is accomplished. The reality is that Jesus came to fulfill the law. So does that make it harder or easier... To obey. Uh, The late scholar uh, John Stott points out, he says, the Pharisees were making the law's demands less demanding and the law's permissions more permissive. Jesus reversed both of these. What Jesus did rather was to explain the true meaning of the moral law with all its uncomfortable implications. See, the religious leaders thought that um, Jesus was making the law easier, that he wasn't as strict as they were, but actually he flips it on his head... And was saying, no, no, you guys are making this easier. You guys are making this attainable. What I'm doing is actually showing you how difficult it is to follow this law. Um, The religious leaders had made the law into something they could obey. They made it into something that was doable and attainable because they misinterpreted the law as being this external superficial thing. And Jesus comes and says, obedience actually goes way down into your heart's motives. Uh, Take the example of lust which he's going to talk about later in this sermon. And we'll, we'll talk about that. It starts in verse 27. Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Okay, so using that as an example, the Pharisees, the religious people, would take that, this law, do not commit adultery, and think of it in the most basic terms, and say, okay, because they hadn't physically been with a woman who was not their spouse, who was not their wife, they would say, we've not committed adultery. We're good. We're obedient. Check that box and move on. What else can we check off on this list of following God? But Jesus says, well, hang on a minute. What's going on in your heart? Um, if you've had one passing thought about a woman who is not your wife, you've actually broken this law. He's saying this is not just about external behavior. This is about your heart. What's going on inside of you? Jesus takes obedience to another level. And as you're hearing this, the words of Psalm 30 come to mind. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand before you? If that's the standard, not even having a thought, who could stand? Some of you are in professions where you have to pass like a comprehensive exam, like a board exam in order to be licensed to practice in your field. Um, the equivalent of this for, for pastors in our denomination would be ordination exams. Um, and so after you complete seminary training um, and you've been offered a ministry position somewhere to be a pastor, you have to pass a series of exams. And it starts with, um, it's a number of requirements, but the main things are five written exams that you take. And you have to pass those. You send them in, they grade them. And then if you do well enough, in the five written exams... You do those same five exams orally in front of a committee, and the committee is made up of, of different pastors and elders and a presbytery. And, um, and if you get through the committee exam, then you go before the whole presbytery, which is a group about you know the size of this room, and you stand in front of all those people and you have to pass those, those five exams again, where they can ask you whatever question they want. But the committee oral exam is like the hard part of the ordination exams. And I've talked to people I've served on that committee before, I've talked to people who've been on lots of those committees. And they basically say that the point is to ask such hard questions that eventually that candidate will say, you know, I don't know. And they want to to find out what the parameters of their knowledge are so they can understand their views and what they know, what they don't know. And so they just ask hard question after hard question. And eventually say, I don't know. I don't know. I need to look that up. I don't know. Here's where I would look to find that. I don't know. I don't know. So you can actually leave that exam thinking, I just did terribly on that. I said, I don't know so much. But the reality is you don't really know how you did because you may have actually passed the exam. And I've heard others of you share similar stories about board exams that you've been through. But you walk away feeling the weight of like, if that's the standard, if knowing all those things is standard, I do not measure up to that standard. And you start thinking, can anyone measure up to that standard? Can anyone meet that line? Jesus did not come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. And in doing so, he shows us that the demands of the law go so deep, they go to our heart's motivations. And it leaves us thinking, who can do this? Who can measure up? And there's a transition that happens in verses 19 and 20, where Jesus moves from clarifying his thoughts about obedience to then applying it to those listening, which if you remember, first and foremost would have been his disciples, sort of first ring of his audience would have been disciples. He went up on the mountain, they sat with him, But then others began to gather around behind them. And so he turns a spotlight to us. Let's talk about us and our obedience. When it comes to us and our obedience, in this passage, we see the struggle and the standard. The struggle, verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. He talks about relaxing the commands of God. He's actually still talking about here what the scribes and Pharisees do. Um, he says that it, essentially that it may appear like they're religious, the, the, the Pharisees, the scribes, are these religious superstars. That they're doing more than what is asked, asked. But they're actually lessening the law's demands. They're relaxing the law. Why? They're making it attainable so that they can obey it. And we do this too. This is our struggle with God's law, to relax it in such a way that makes it attainable for us or it justifies maybe how we're currently living or what we're currently doing. I see this all over the place in my own life. Um, so my own household, I won't name names, but let's say one of my children is being harsh or critical with one of my other children or with me or my wife, Erin, and, and, I'll, and I'll say something. I'll be like, hey, 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 let's kindness, kindness, kindness. Let's, let's be nice. So let's, let's not be so salty. Just dial it down a little bit. Let's be kind. Turn down the spice. Um, I'll raise the standard for my kids if they're being harsh with each other. And I'm quick to call it out. But then if I'm annoyed or if I'm frustrated and I'm the one being harsh with others, I can, and someone, someone tries to call me out on it, they should be doing whatever they're doing differently. Look, I'm mad because I'm right. Um, I'll lower the standard for myself, and I will totally justify how I'm feeling and how short I'm being with people. In the meantime, I am so quick to call out those in my family who I've raised the bar for with their attitudes towards others. Um, We do this individually. We raise the standards for others. We lower the standards for ourselves. We can do this even organizationally. This is a real temptation for churches when Christians get together to sort of like look out at the bad people and say, oh, I'm glad we're not like them. I'm glad we figured it out. Uh, Meanwhile, we'll we'll justify and rationalize our own infighting or greed or immorality or whatever the case may be. This is sinful human nature one-on-one. Raise the standards for others. Lower the standards for ourselves. We are prone to relax the law of God. Why? To give ourselves a pass on obedience, to make obedience to God's law attainable, to make it doable, And Jesus says, if we do this, we'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven. That to be called great is is to both obey this law and to teach it to others. And that's not immediately comforting. He's not making things easier for us. Then he goes on. That's the struggle. He talks about the standard. Look at verse 20. You see the standard. He says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, When I first read that, I thought... Is he saying that we need to, to like beat the Pharisees at their own game? That's not what he's saying. He's saying that, the righteousness, that righteousness in the kingdom of God is upside down compa- compared to the way that the world thinks about righteousness. Um, the world thinks about righteousness as the one who follows the most rules. Jesus thinks about righteousness as the one who has a heart for God. And because they have a heart for God, they live out of that new reality. Uh, Doriani says that Jesus' instructions in the Sermon on the Mount, they illustrate the way of an obedient heart. That He says we surpass the scribes and the Pharisees by having a heart for God. The Sermon on the Mount, which we're going to see in the coming weeks, is all about our heart. It talks a lot about behavior, but Jesus is keying in on our hearts and the motivation and what's really going on deep in our hearts when we obey and follow God. And ultimately to have a righteous heart is to have a heart for God. So how can we have a heart for God? To have a heart for God is to have a heart that's been transformed by God. We read uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 in our assurance of grace this morning. Let me read that again. If you have a Bible, maybe make a note out to the side to look at this later. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is describing what it's like to have a heart transformed by God. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. He says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God." What's that saying? When we truly believe, when the Holy Spirit enters our hearts, gives us new life, we become new. We're a new creation. The old goes away. The new has come. And all this can happen because Jesus did what it just said. He took our sin upon himself. He gave us his righteousness, this great exchange that happens. We're made new. We're given a new heart. We're given new life. We're given new identity so that in him we can live out this new righteousness. The old is gone. The new has come. We've had a few weddings in our church recently. Shout out to all of our newlyweds or soon to be newlyweds. Uh, something happens when a husband and wife walk down the aisle. Uh, two become one. This, this new entity is formed. And they, lead their old, they leave their old life behind of, of being unmarried. And they enter into this new life of being married. And at the center of this new life together is a love for each other. And the love between a husband and wife, it shapes how they live. Um, this one spouse begins cleaning up dirty clothes off the floor because they love their spouse and they know it will honor their spouse if they start cleaning up clothes off the floor. Which maybe as a single person they weren't doing that. Um, each spouse begins to think differently about how they use their time in the evenings or on the weekends, maybe fewer happy hours with coworkers in order to go home and spend time together. Why? Because they love each other. And they love to be together and they love to make those sacrifices because of this new life, this new love that they have. Um, but they form a new unit, a new family together based on the love they share. And it reshapes their day-to-day life, how they live. And uh, marriages struggle when that love is no longer at the center. And over time, you drift apart and you're not living for each other anymore. You're living for yourselves. Jesus came to make us into new people, new creatures. If you're in Christ, you're not the same person that you were before you were in Christ. You're in a new family, this new entity, and it's based on love. And it's the love of God that transforms your heart. It's love that motivated the Father to send the Son To rescue you. It's love that adopts you into God's family as a son or a daughter. It's out of God's love for you that he sustains you through the ups and downs of life. and, And he promises to finish that work that he started in you. It's love. At the center of all of this is a love relationship with God. His love pouring into your heart by the Holy Spirit. Your love going back to him and out to others. And this love transforms how we live. It transforms our obedience. It reframes it completely. Um, We don't obey to earn God's favor. We already have his love and favor. It's ours completely in Jesus. But nor do we say that obedience doesn't matter. Uh, Would a spouse ever say that it doesn't matter how they treated their husband and their wife? Of course not. Why? Because they love each other. It absolutely matters. We obey because it honors the one that we love. And we do so out of a heart that has been transformed and made new. Where we actually see that this way of obedience, living out this love, is a good way of life. It actually becomes a joy and a desire to follow this way that he sets before us. And Jesus is going to spend the rest of the sermon... This is sort of like the intro to the rest of the sermon. Unpacking that specifically. Anger, lust, enemies... Commitments, all that. He's going to tell us how this applies to that. This love relationship, this heart righteousness, how that gets lived out practically. But the question for us this morning is, do you know and do you believe that God really loves you? Because this is where it begins, not with parsing out the details of how obedient or disobedient you are. It begins by recognizing that there is a God who loves you. And he loves you so much, he offers himself to you th- today. Won't you receive this love? Won't you be transformed? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the love that you have for us. Uh, it's a love that transforms, it's a love that sent Jesus to come and rescue us. And it's a love that gives us his heart righteousness, that, that really transforms who we are, gives us a new identity. And, and a love that enables us to live out this identity. And so would you show us if we default into thinking of obedience as everything or as nothing. And would you lovingly correct us, lovingly lead us down the way of a heart that has been transformed. That is righteous because of you. And it begins to bear fruit accordingly. Father, would you meet us today and meet us as we prepare to come to your table. In Jesus' name, amen.